Welcome to The Art of Growth. This week we are taking on a subject that comes up a lot and we've never really discussed, which is where does the Enneagram come from? What are the origins of the Enneagram? And I know in certain circles there's a lot of concern around that question, so we're going to address it today. Before we do that, just wanted to let you know that a hub of all of our work is theartofgrowth.org. If you'd like to get in contact with us for coaching or you have any questions for us, you can contact us there. But for right now, let's just go ahead and jump into Joel and I talking about the origins of the Enneagram. So, hey, Joel. Where did the Enneagram come from? Um, hey, Jim, where did the Enneagram come from? <laughs> I do have some thoughts on this because we get this question a lot, but I wanted to just throw a brief episode out for YouTube and for our podcast listeners to just talk about, yeah, this origins because there's a lot of discussion. You hear this stuff all the time, like some people saying it comes from Sufi mysticism. Some people talk about it coming from the uh, Desert Fathers and the Christian tradition. Other people say it's like a cultic or something. And so mm. when you think about the origins, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is my conversation after the International Enneagram Association's event this past um, year. And um, listening to Russ Hudson, he wasn't you know presenting. This was just like a riffing conversation afterwards with a, with a few people. He's saying, you know, as far as he's aware of, it, it's, it emerged from the Desert Fathers. Um, and for people who don't immediately know the name Russ Hudson, he is probably the leading thinker of the Enneagram currently in the world. His book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram with uh, Don Rizzo, is the most read, the most widely purchased one. And he also runs the Enneagram Institute mm-hmm. online. And a lot of mm-hmm. people who have taken their first Enneagram test probably took his. So that's a little context on who yeah, Russ Hudson is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So – you know, he has his his thoughts around that, and I'm sure others have their thoughts around where it originated from. And I think that's actually kind of good because mm-hmm. the fact that nobody knows for sure where he, where it, how it emerged, where it emerged, that's because when something's true at a deep level, at a human race level, regardless of what culture, what generation you're from, there are certain truths about humanity that continue on. And and they're difficult for us to kind of name and perhaps discover even before we name it, but they're there and we have the sense of type. Yeah. There's, there's always been a sense of people are different. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it, you think differently than I do. How come? How come we're raised in the same exact family, yeah. raised with the same sort of rules and, and worldview, yeah. culture, everything, but you are completely different than I am, and you're right. only, we're only a year apart as siblings. You know, that's a good example of, of how different we are. Is just look at your family, right? But then we look across other demographics, and that's you know even more pronounced. Sure. So I think it's just the enneagram is true because it's it is true. Yeah, and there's a certain age where uh, kids start to individuate from their parents. Like I am a separate person. And I have separate thoughts and I don't know what someone else is thinking. And it's yeah. like just a part of the evolution of a human is to see that there's different things. But then – but this thing as far as where did this model come from? And I think a lot of times people who have looked at it a little bit, they only go as far back as like Gurdjieff. 
Mm-hmm. So there's this guy named Gurdjieff, and he is a psychologist and um, philosopher in the late 30s. He's of Armenian descent, uh, living in Russia. And he is into Pythagoras and these numbers and all of this different stuff. Really and so esoteric. This, like, super esoteric, yeah. Symbols having meaning and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. like that's actually existed in all these different cultures where you have this like um, they call sacred geometry or these things that they notice as reoccurring in nature. So you have the law of one, the circle, eternity. Mm-hmm. Everything is this one. And then the law of three and law of seven. And then you end up with this symbol that he drew He was the first one to draw what we think of as the modern Enneagram symbol. Mm. Um, I think it's interesting point here to point out that he had uh, the dotted lines drawn with three equal triangles, but he didn't put that out as the symbol he was using because it's the late 30s. He's seeing Hitler on the rise, and he doesn't want to draw something that looks too similar to the Mm. Jewish star. Mm. And so— I actually wonder if the image is of the Harmony Enneagram, I don't know if it would be sort of the dominant Enneagram image today if if that had not been the case. But for most people, the symbol they know was drawn first by Gurdjieff, mm-hmm. and he talked about these triads, the head, heart, and the body triad. Um, and then another psychologist named, uh, was it, I think, Achazo, who yeah. did the nine personality types. Yeah. But to actually look at where else this thing shows up, it shows up all over the place. And there's this term in science called uh, multiple discovery. For instance, calculus arose at the exact same time in history within a few years of each other in totally different parts of the world by different people who weren't communicating. Mm. And it wasn't something that was that had an origin. It was not something that was created. It was discovered. This is the uh, age-old uh, argument among mathematicians. Yeah. Is, 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 it, is math... Created or discovered. Right. And maybe the answer is uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, and that's exactly there is something about the Enneagram that's true that we know we're sort of stumbling on and discovering. And then there's this formation of it that you're mm-hmm. describing through Gurdjieff and Achazo. And, and that's part of the work, right? So right. is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But it's our best attempt to this point of trying to discern something that is true. And so I yeah. think I think being okay with there is truth. Yeah. But none of us know it fully and completely. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be in pursuit of it and trying to really keep working at it because there's benefit that comes from doing that. Yeah. And there's a statistician that talks about how the purpose of any model is to get us to a better model. <laughs> and That's um, well put, yes. Yeah. And I think that it's a model that uh, is an attempt to explain something that has been going on for some time. So I love in Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Complete Enneagram, where she goes through Homer's Iliad and like the yeah, nine really places yeah, yeah. and the nine places look like the nine Enneagram types. <laughs> it's, it's so you're seeing funny, this. Yeah. yeah. You're seeing this in yeah. Homer, but there's almost like this, this recognition of, I mean, you talk a lot about it's not type. It's not types of people. These are not types so much as archetypes. Mm-hmm. Explain a little bit of what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's part of the the difficulty of even comparing those two because archetype is not as clear. It's not something yeah. you can you can say, this is what it is. You can say this is what it isn't better than you can say this is what it is. Right. Um, mother so is an archetype. Mother is an archetype. It's not father. Right. <laughs> it's, it, it's not father. It's mother. 
And yet, what is mother? Uh, Well, then you you start to create. You have to go a bit more into giving detail around it. And the moment you do, the moment you give definition around any of these things, definition is flawed, right? Because of various reasons. My culture, my viewpoint, (laughs) all influences how I define things. It's necessarily reductionistic in order (laughs) to explain something that is beyond... (laughs) It is, it's so frustrating. It's the frustrating work of any teacher. Yeah. You know, you have to do it. You have to become reductionistic. And when you do, you, you're going to make mistakes. You're going yeah. to communicate in ways that are imperfect. But yet communication has to be done. And so I think that when we talk about type and, uh, you know, the, the typology of the Enneagram, we're describing behaviors, we're describing patterns, and we're describing uh, motivations, and those things are going to describe a lot and miss another percentage of people as well. You're going to yeah. have people that will say, well, that I don't fit within that because that entire description does not describe me accurately. Totally. And that should be the case. Yeah. <laughs> because you are not you're, – you're not just simply a type you know, 9 or a type 2 or a type 5. You are – more than that, you've got culture, gender, you've got your environment, how you were raised. All those things play roles into who you are in, in, in your formation. So the archetype is much more this sort of feel and energy to a particular type. And that's not as easily discernible. But mm. the more you work with it, the more you start picking up on that that feel. You know, When I first started into it, I thought, that's all woo-woo stuff, feel, energy, right. what is it? But as I began doing lots, hundreds, uh, hundreds of interviews and and uh, coaching people all over the world, I started being able to almost right away from the first phone call or the first interview. Now, I don't do this in general with like, you know, walking down the street, talking sure. to somebody, I type them. I don't do that. I, I just it's not my my nature to, to even think that way. But what happens is when I'm when I'm actually sitting across from somebody and the purpose is to do typing is when I tune into them. I can start to feel certain mm-hmm. um, certain energy that comes from them. And, you know, someone did that with me on the phone the other day and said, all right, so you've been talking to me for about 20 minutes now. Take a guess as to what type <laughs> I am. And we were talking about anything but them. It was, it was just yeah. talking in general. And I said, oh, man, this is tough. I said, but I have to tell you that I pick up on hard energy. And um, she's like, yeah, well, I'm a four. And so, you know, that was what I was picking up on. I was intuiting that, right? So yeah. there's certain things like that that you start to pick up on a lot more as you do it. That's more archetype. That's more of a feel. There's a, there's a, there's, you know, a general approach to that. So I love how the Enneagram just reveals much more of your sort of core pattern motivation and then gives you that freedom to be as complex as you can possibly be as a human. Yeah. And yet it is still remarkably helpful as an archetype. So So I think we got a little bit um, sidetracked. Did you explain the conversation with Russ Hudson? Like, what did he actually say in that conversation, that informal conversation? (laughs) Well, so, yeah, he he was kind of, uh, so this is me paraphrasing some of the things he said, so please do not quote me as saying, (laughs) this is definitely what Russ said, because he might take issue with it. Uh, But my paraphrase of it is, he was riffing off of a question and somebody had brought up on the origins of the Enneagram. And he said, you know, there's a lot of confusion. There's people that think it comes from Sufism. And he said, if from his perspective, that seemed to be more of a, just something to to kind of create some sizzle and energy around hmm. the Enneagram, more so than it was to do with its actual origins. And hmm. for him, he was pretty sure that it originated from the Desert Fathers. 
Um, and as the Desert Fathers were gaining disciples and then they were doing these daily prayers and meditations, uh, they began to notice how difficult it was for some of the disciples as they came, you know, out of leaving um, Rome and, you know, going out to the desert and really wanting to connect with God. You know, so they were leaving the sort of organized religions that had become very politicized in, in Rome and really wanted true spirituality, but struggled with doing the work that was necessary uh, to, to get there. And so the Desert Fathers began noticing certain types and observing. I mean, right, the moment you do any work with people, if you work with people at any, you know, for any length of time, yeah. you pick up on those things, like certain yeah. personalities, right? At a rough level, you do. And so that's where it began to emerge. And often the question that was being posed was what stands between us and God? And the answer was our personality, us. Yeah. You know, and so if you could learn what was standing in that personality, that passion, that fixation, you could begin to work against it and then become free of it, you know, over time become more free of it and then have that deeper connection to to the divine. Yeah, and this this stuff that is very um central to the church fathers and those um those early guys are the the seven deadly sins and noticing that people had a preference for them and we still use some of that language. Yeah. Seven deadly sins plus two that were added fear and deceit were added to the seven deadly sins and those are still the ones that they use to describe the enneagram and I think a lot of times people who stop at Gurdjieff they don't look at some of the models that were drawn by these early mathematicians like um, Ramon Lull, who drew these Pythagorean drawings of how do you take a vice and turn it into a virtue. That vice to virtue conversion mm. was something they were very interested in. So if your particular vice is uh, lust or gluttony or something, like how do you change that into being, you know, the focus or in, in serving and vulnerability and mm. others. And like, how does that vice get converted into a virtue? And he would make these drawings of these things that he's like, it has to kind of connect this way. Mm. And some of those drawings look very much like the forefathers of Enneagram type drawings in mm. this like continued evolution of discovery. When people talk about the origins of something you know, we live in a technology culture where there's a line from invention to product. And I think that gets sort of into our psyche. We don't have this kind of concept of like historical evolution, this unfolding of something yeah. over a yeah. long time, like the development of a martial art or something that's extremely complex and you have to get to know the intricacies of the human body. But, you know, when you look at 15th century martial arts from Italy, and you look at the ones from Japan, they look very similar because the body moves in certain ways. And I think there is this aspect of some of these systems or how we understand people that we have to remember. It's not so much creation or origin as it is emergence from a natural process of understanding how human beings work, how cultural overlay works, how we're influenced, how we respond to things, our defense mechanisms, our motivations, all of that. Mm -hmm. And yes. I think whenever people ask me, like, where did the Enneagram come from? I'm always just like, okay, that's, it's really hard to draw a straight line. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's the reason why we wanted to talk about this is to, is to explain it much more is that um, there's something that evolved, something that grew, you know, mm -hmm. that we discovered increasingly. And I think that's what 
science brings to us is the inquisitive mind, the mind that's willing to be curious and interested. And as we do so, we discover, we learn more, we understand more. We discover in some sense that there is something there. Yeah. But at what level can we fully ascertain it? We don't know. It's an ever ongoing thing. Yeah. And so I think it's okay for us to say, hey, we don't know the, the that there's like a, a particular moment in which right. aliens brought to us this <laughs> model that was perfectly created by an advanced culture or that, you know, God dropped it out of the sky right. to some individual complete as it was. Right. I don't think that's... A, that's I don't think that's, anything exists that way. Yeah, it's, no. it's, it's much more of a stumbling into it, discovering, yeah. having epiphanies and... And like moments of real big epiphany, sure, yeah. yeah. And then that moves things forward. But that's um, that's the process, I think. So yeah, and not to become too attached to the form as it is. And I think that that's always a a tendency when something mm. really helps you or affects you. It becomes almost like a religion that you defend instead of oh, allowing yeah. for the continual evolution. Which I don't think it's done evolving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, and I hope not because none of us have arrived at any. And this is w the learning, the sort of willingness to always have a learning mind, like mm -hmm. growth mentality. Are we thinking that we've arrived and that this is it? This is the right. pinnacle? No. Like, yeah. I sure hope not because right. that will make life really boring and dull. Like, we need to continue to grow and learn more. And by learning more and growing more, um, then there's there's more hope for even better development. I think about the Enneagram right now. It's great. It's wonderful. But there's still a lot of questions we're not able to answer that, that I'd like to be able to answer, and including using artificial intelligence tools. Like, why not? Right. You know, to actually get it to where we're more efficient with human growth and transformation. Um, and not, it doesn't eliminate the hard work. You know, there is hard work. There will always be hard work. But the sort of one size fits all model to personal development and growth yeah. has worn itself out. And now we're much more into how do you tailor it to individuals? And, and I think that's right. So right. we're at a point where it feels like there's another tipping point where we're going to suddenly have this really big growth and, and new models that are going to be helpful to us. So I think it's a really good point you make, Jim, that yeah, none of these models or systems are perfect and none of them are are the the destination we finally have arrived and we're good now. But if you have gotten to a place where for you the Enneagram is new and you're just so enthralled by it that you do want to hold on to it tightly, that's your stage right now. And that's okay. Yeah. But at some point you're you're also going to realize its limitations and that there's uh, there's more to it. It's just right. it's a it's a way of seeing things, but it's not. It doesn't give you answers for everything in life. Right, and humans continue to evolve, and that's why we you know go into spiral dynamics here and there, and um, these other models that help us understand how people change. Because there's an extent to which people are people, and there's consistent things, uh, there's consistent motivations that happen within us, but how that gets expressed changes. And I think the Enneagram, it started as this idea of self-reporting. Like, I don't tell you where you fit, but you self-report what you are. And I think because of that, there will be a natural, um, it has the flexibility built into it from that value system mm. to actually 
protect itself from getting too stagnant or becoming too formulaic. I think it will have that dynamic capacity because as humans evolve and they continue to be a part of the self-reporting that creates it, I think that will have a uh, that secures a continued use of the Enneagram. Yeah. Well, this is this is honoring the growth mindset, the evolutionary aspect of humans. And mm-hmm. that if there's only a model that's given from someone who invented this model <laughs> and then tells you this is the way the world is neatly divided. Yeah, it won't work. Well, that won't work. Yeah. But if the system is built on how do you report yourself and what are you learning about yourself to the degree that you're aware, yeah. you know, in, in awareness continues to evolve. That's great. And then you compare that to the written literature. Well, this is how people report generally people within your type report themselves. What do you think about that? Well, I don't relate to that part. Well, then maybe you don't right now. And maybe in six months you will, maybe yeah. in two years you will, or maybe not. And that's yeah. okay too. But, um, but yes, it honors that, that, that whole approach. And I think, that's, you know, one of the fun things I, I I get to do is when I'm interviewing people and getting to know them and asking them about their type. I meet people for the first time at all different ages from all over the country and the world. And the world, yeah. we Yeah. And it doesn't matter their culture <laughs> or anything because when we get to the core of the type. It shows up. It shows up. Yep. And it's the same all the time. It's like they can present one way, but once we get to the core, it's, oh, yeah, that's actually what's going on for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where we say there's so much flexibility around the expression of the type. Yeah. But at core, the motivation, the core sort of way of thinking, feeling, and being, that doesn't change. That's pretty much what it is. And if you don't relate to that, then we say, well, then that's probably not your type. Right. (laughs) Um, so that there's some universality to it, yeah. which is really interesting. But again, once you go beyond that and into the behaviors, that's where it's like, well, not exactly, you know. Yeah. So. And the language of the type is is definitely shows up as well. Like there's certain um, words that come out. There's certain phrases that come out. There's certain values that come out because, yeah, it's there. And probably, you know, language creates culture. So the language will evolve and mm. a lot of these things will move and and change, but like like where that's coming from, there is a lot of stability to it. And I think when we talk about the origin of something, it's a recognition of of seeing that over yeah. time. You know, yeah. I mean, this as things evolve, you know, every parent's just like, I've got, I do, I have these two kids, and they're so different, and I am so different from my sibling, and I'm totally different than my dad or my mom, and you start to kind of meet other people and you're like, well, you remind me of my daughter or my sibling. And because you start to notice these patterns. And I think that has eventually evolved into this model that we are now able to use to go, okay, now you can actually see the pattern because other people are seeing you and you're reporting on yourself. And, but guess what? You can actually do something about it. Yeah. And so I think that's why this continues to be useful and it's expanding, you know, all over the all over the world, um, yeah. especially here in the States. And so I just wanted to take a couple minutes to go over a couple of those things because they come up yeah. all the time. And I thought it'd be great to throw it out there. So, yeah. yeah. So it's a frustrating answer to many of you because you probably <laughs> would have liked it to be 
you know, Joel and Jim have done lots of research and we definitively have an answer. This yeah. is where it originated from. And then again, if we did that, many of you would be like, yeah, now I definitely do not believe you. Right. Um, and so we've struck that uncomfortable middle, which is there's truth. <laughs> we know yeah. that. And yet it's it's this system that is ever evolving and in, in, incomplete. And that's also true as well. So but here's the thing, as Jim mentioned, it is so useful, folks. Oh, my goodness. Like, I can't tell you how many stories that we are getting here at The Art of Growth and in my own work as a coach and professional coach and individual coach and um, that uh, lives are being changed all the time. Yeah, it's crazy. And um, this is what they tell me and how it effective it is. And so so it's a, it's a useful and very powerful tool that we all hold loosely and all recognize none of us is in control. The Enneagram is not owned by any institution, folks. <laughs> it right. is not in, none of us are in control of it. And I think that's the humble approach that all of us leaders should have is like, we've run into something, we've discovered mm -hmm. something, and we're trying to be really good students of it. Yeah. Rather than, oh, we're all, you know, we're masters now of the, of the Enneagram. Yeah, this is a practice yeah. that we're all trying to participate in. And it only works is to the extent that we practice with the people that we're yeah. interacting with, the people in our families and our lives, the people we're coaching. And that's where it comes from. So yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, this brief overview on the origins of the Enneagram. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening, and I hope that answer was helpful, even if it is not conclusive. If you have any further questions for us, please contact us at theartofgrowth.org. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, which is still called, at the moment, Enneagram Panels. Our Instagram is Art of Growth. A really exciting thing we have coming out this year is our own Enneagram test which we will be talking about very soon in the future. But if you'd like to be a part of that initial beta group to help us out in the development, you can um, sign up for our email list on theartofgrowth.org. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show. And as always, thank you so much and have an amazing week. Mm -hmm.